simplicity and ease is what you get when you host your podcast with Audio Boom. You can post up to five episodes per month, you get unlimited storage, and 500 minutes of recording time for each episode. Plus, advanced analytics, embeddable players, distribution of your podcast via Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Sovin, Spotify, and Stitcher. Pending approval by each platform. Right now, you can sign up for Audioboom's $9.99 monthly subscription plan and get your first month free by using promo code BOOM. That's B-O-O-M for one month free of hosting and distribution. Sign up for our $9.99 monthly subscription plan today. This is the MLW Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Primetime with Sean Mooney. Just coming off a very inspiring episode of PTSM with one of the most determined individuals I have ever met in professional wrestling, and there are certainly a lot of them out there. But the road that Carl Willett, or PCO as he is known to many people, uh, Pierre Lafitte, however you remember him in the ring as, uh, traveled uh, a, an incredible road to find success in the business, and it is just amazing what he accomplished along the way. Uh, from basically at the beginning being turned away by uh, Stu Hart uh, to failing several times and being fired from many different territories and then finally making it in Europe and eventually uh, getting to the WWE and becoming a three-time tag team champion. Uh, that is just incredible. And guess what? The guy is still at it, which is amazing and, and better than ever, according to Carl. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Carl uh, Willett, and I hope if you didn't catch that episode, you will. He's uh, an incredible individual. Uh, we've got another great conversation on the way in this edition of Prime Time with Sean Mooney. Uh, joining us is Scott Levy, better known as Raven, and uh, one of the most compelling personalities you're ever going to encounter in the world of professional wrestling. And we had a great conversation. And it turns out we go way back, I mean, way back to the beginning. And there's a great story in this podcast uh, as we begin our, our chat. Um, and I don't want to give it away, but you are going to love it. And it is something you'll actually be able to go and see I'll tell you how you can do that. Um, uh, I hope you t I teased you enough there. But that is coming up, my conversation with Scott Levy. Uh, big news this week with the announcement of this spectacular event. You've been hearing about it uh, that's taking place at the end of August. Uh, September 1st is uh, actually when the all-in event takes place. But surrounding that is StarCast. And I am honored to have been asked to be a part of it. You know, and as I mentioned, it's all tied into uh, All In, which is uh, taking place at the Sears Center in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. And you probably heard about this uh, this week, of, that uh, when those tickets went on sale, 10,000 tickets sold out in less than a half an hour. That is amazing when you're talking independent wrestling here. So I've really been thinking about it. Maybe you have, too, is, uh, you know, what does it all mean to the world of professional wrestling? Uh, this event, you know, is headlined by Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks uh, that uh, started out basically on a on a dare, really, to put this event together. And it's amazing that uh, you, you're seeing these indies that are that are taking off. Japan is also, uh, you know, a big surge there. And of course, Ring of Honor. And uh, I really wonder what it means. Uh, are we seeing a resurgence to the point where will it challenge the the WWE? Uh, 
Maybe it'll change the industry. Maybe that's what uh, the business needs. Or is it, uh, you know, a one-shot deal? But uh, you'll have to remember way back when, when there was something called WrestleMania and everybody was saying, yeah, it's his one shot. It's going to happen and then it'll go away. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And I think it's certainly tremendous for the world of professional wrestling. And um, this StarCast event that's also taking place, it's got, uh, you know, a lot of great people that are going to be there. Uh, I mentioned Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks. They're, they're headlining that as well. They'll be there. But so many others, uh, about 20-plus names, and every day they're adding more people. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I'm going to be there. And we're going to do a, a version, a live version, uh, for the first time of Primetime with Sean Mooney. And that is going to be uh, a lot of fun to do. And we'd love to hear your suggestions. We put out uh, a tweet I think yesterday, you know, asking for, you know, uh, what you want to see, because, uh, you know, maybe we can do more of these, go to different cities and do them. We'll see how it goes. But I'm really excited about doing it. A few other surprises that are going to be involved in this as well. And uh, I can't wait to get there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, if you want to chat with me about it or give me your thoughts on it, please email me. Uh, of course, at primetimemooney at gmail.com. That's primetimemooney at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, also, I don't know if you've checked out our YouTube channel, uh, a Primetime with Sean Mooney. Uh, we've been slowly uh, but surely climbing uh, with our number of subscribers. We just cracked 600 subscribers, which is awesome. And as we uh, reach each one of these milestones, we're, we've been releasing bonus material. And this is stuff that you can't listen to anywhere else. We're only putting it up on YouTube. And of course there's, there's tons of content on there. Um, it's not, you know, it's not just new stuff we put on there. We also release the uh, episodes that have already been up on, on the platforms that you download the uh, podcast on every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. But we also put up those full episodes and, um, Casey Dronbeck and Evan Polisher have been really great about cutting that stuff up, you know, with some of the really great material and then uh, labeling them as clips. We can go on there and listen, for example, you know, get Lex Luger talking about, uh, you know, Elizabeth or, you know, some of the other uh, superstars talking about, you know, their uh, other superstars they've been involved with in matches and stuff like that. So there's a ton of material up there. We're going to keep adding to it. Uh, next up is uh, our 700. But as I mentioned, we reached 600 subscribers. So as promised, uh, we've released that uh, question and answer uh, clip with Lex Luger. Um, when we did our conversation, when I wrapped it up, I had a ton of questions uh, from you guys, from, from our listeners. And uh, this, is, this is that clip of uh, the, the, the answers that he had, had on there. And there's topics that are all over the place. So it's really interesting. You ought to check that out. And that uh, is now going to be up on our YouTube channel because you helped us reach 600 subscribers. Now we want to get to 700, of course. Our big goal is 1,000, and then we will pass that and go on to 5,000 and 10,000. But, you know, one step at a time here. And uh, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do that. It's real easy to do. Uh, you don't even have to go to YouTube and search anything. We've made it easier than that. All you have to do is go to primetimemooney.com. It'll take you right to the channel, primetimemooney.com, and then you can check out all that great material we have up there. So much to talk about. I also, um, we mentioned this. We put it out on our Facebook page, 
and of course, uh, Twitter and Instagram. We have brand new t-shirts out and I love them. I love these t-shirts and we've got more coming, but we wanted to get these out because we've been working on them for a while. And uh, one of them is, is Moon Nation. But what is unique about this, not only is do I love the Moon Nation and you guys are fantastic, but you can buy these t-shirts and within Moon Nation, uh, we have your flag of your country. So because we have listeners from all over the world. So for example, you know, we have uh, the United States flag. We've also got an outline of the United States inside the Moon Nation. And then you can get, uh, we've got the British flag. We've got, uh, you know, like a map of the UK, uh, New Zealand, Australia. You go on there and you pick the one you want. And they're really, the design is awesome uh, that we've got for those. So uh, you can check out our brand new tees. We made that easy as well. All you have to do is go to mooneytees.com. How how much easier can we make this for you? Go to mooneytees.com and uh, grab one of those shirts. And the other brand new one, which is fantastic, is the Golden Age of Wrestling. And you know what what age I'm talking about. We're talking the 80s and 90s. And uh, the T-shirt has little subtle things on there that remind you of that tremendous period of history in professional wrestling. Uh, there's uh, some clippers on there. I think you know who I'm talking about. There's a uh, a bird, which, you know, and it's just a really great T-shirt. So check out that new one, the Golden Age of Wrestling T-shirt that's on there. And you can also pick up a Sean Mooney Who. That's uh, still our biggest seller. So uh, check those out at MooneyTees.com. So uh, there's your assignment. You've got uh, a lot going on. We need you to uh, go to YouTube, right? Uh, subscribe if you haven't, and you can do that by going to primetimemooney.com. And then I want you to check out the new tees at mooneytees.com, mooneytees.com. And we need you to listen to another great conversation on Primetime with Sean Mooney. And we're going to do that right now. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, my guest may just be the most multi-layered individual we have ever had on the podcast. Uh, he may have played uh, many characters during his travels in professional wrestling, but I don't believe he ever strayed very far from who he really was in or out of the ring. Now, people really didn't discover that until he became who most remember him as, and of course, know him as today, Raven, also known as Scott Levy. Scott, thank you so much for coming on Primetime. How are you? Oh, no problem, man. Uh, it's a pleasure. Okay, Scott. So before we went on the air, you said uh, you didn't think we'd ever met. And uh, I'm going to take you back because I, I think you're going to remember this. I hope you do. Um, before I went to work with the WWF uh, in 1988, I worked for a Major League Baseball Productions in New York. And I did this show. I was a producer trying to get out. You know, I, I did a lot of talent stuff when I could. I wrote and did all the everything. So I, I got to work on this show called Light Moments in Sports with Joe Namath. And I was a producer on the show, but they wanted to be able to go out and do these different segments with sports and this kind of thing. It was a blooper show. It was like one of the first ones that was uh, ever syndicated out there. So one of the stories we did, they wanted to do professional wrestling. And we hooked up with Larry Sharp and I went out there and I did a story, uh, you know, for the show. And, um, it was, it was a lot of fun. It, we, we didn't go, you know, uh, the whole approach was, you know, have respect for it, but have a good time with it. And I was kind of the idiot reporter who they destroy. And I, <laughs> I, I know for a fa I mean, what I remember Scotty, the body 
And I think you were at peace with me. Do you remember that? Vaguely. There was, it was at the airport hangar where you had yes. to yeah, yeah, no, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, it was, I think it was, they selected, it was uh, Larry, we said, you know, get us a couple of guys who are, you know, your top guys who would like to be in this piece. And I think you did it. And I can't, I wish I could remember the other guy, but I got to thinking about this, you know, doing my research, uh, for the, for the show. And I'm like, I, I think that was Scotty. I think yeah, that, he, yeah, that, that, that well, I the, do vaguely remember that. So anyway, so in a, in a, in a indirect way, you, you kind of played a role in me getting to the WWF because, uh, apparently, uh, one of Vince's people saw it because it was airing in New York, and uh, I had I knew a guy that had worked at Major League Baseball who had gone to work for Vince. He said, "I know that guy." So it it, it was just all connected. Wow! Saying, like, isn't that amazing though? When I yeah, think back, it's crazy. Yeah, all these connections. But I guess that was kind of the beginning. I don't know. Uh, you were in your early twenties, I think, at the time. Yeah, I just graduated college, and uh, I was still in the Marine Corps Reserve. Um, so, uh, let's see, 87, I was 23. Yeah. So that no, I might've been 22. Cause I probably hadn't turned 23 yet. Wow. That, that's incredible. I'm telling you like, uh, just how, what a connection. And I, yeah, I just, no, that's crazy. it hit me this I, morning. And it's <laughs> funny when you, when you said that we might've met at the monster factory, that's the <laughs> only thing I was like, didn't I do a thing where somebody interviewed me or something that I never saw? I was like, yeah. So yeah, that's yeah, totally. I, Wow. Yeah, I was crazy. that idiot. I was that guy who got bounced around the <laughs> ring. And thank God, I mean, uh, you guys could have really stretched me. And, but Larry was great, and uh, you guys were great. And it really, that's, that. honestly, that's what got me to the no WWF. Yeah, that piece. I, we, How old was, were you in the WWF for? I was there from 88 to 93. So, uh, you know, just well, you were starting. You probably were just coming in then. It was I was leaving. So yeah, probably yeah. Johnny Polo came in probably right. as you were leaving. Yeah, but before we get to all that, um, I, I really love hearing about your path. And you know, you look at you have a you have a degree in criminal justice, right, from Delaware, yeah. Is that from the University of Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how did that? Go from, I mean, you wanted to get into uh, law enforcement. I don't know what your, what was the plan? Well, I was going to go in the FBI or the CIA. Wow. Like that. Something interesting. You know, I thought about the DEA, but then I was like, eh, I do drugs. So that probably wouldn't be a good fit. <laughs> you could, well, you could be maybe undercover, right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> he won't come out. Thought, but that's, I wanted something exciting. I wanted an exciting life. And, um, you know, and I knew that going to law school wasn't for me because I wasn't one for studying. Yeah. So, you know, my too much ADD. So, yeah, so it was, and then I just, and I'd always wanted to be a pro wrestler as a kid, and I just never thought it was a doable thing, because, you know, I was a skinny little Jewish kid. I was 100 and, graduated high school after two years of lifting, I only weighed 160, oh, you wow. know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Jericho graduated high school at 185, so. Yeah, so, he, yeah, so he was a monster compared to you, right? com Compared to me, yeah, and, and <laughs> you know, and, and we're like the same size, well, I mean, I'm a little bit bigger than him, but I mean, yeah. well, maybe. Maybe 20 pounds heavier, but, uh. you know, an inch taller. But, yeah, but it's, you know, but that's just the, the example. I mean, probably the only guy who weighed less than me graduating high school was Mysterio. You know, oh, everybody yeah. weighed more than I did. And that was after two years of lifting. I just had terrible genetics, you know, that I that I overcame my genetics with years of steroid abuse. But, you know, <laughs> which, 
which I don't recommend, but no. you know, and thank God guys today don't have to be, you know, huge to be in the business. But, um, you know, but before you get to that, before you actually got into wrestling, I, 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 I did you ever take any steps to go? Uh, you would have been great in the CIA. I mean, did, did I, you never I, had a discussion with them no, or I, something? I figured, I figured it of like in 11th grade and not 11th grade in my junior year of college, I think, Yeah, yeah. I think it was my junior year that I wanted to go into pro wrestling. Really? And uh, like, I just decided I was big enough, you know, that it wasn't going to be a pipe dream that I could do it. And, uh, and so I just, I never even, you know, looked for, looked at, I didn't, I didn't have a backup plan. I was too stupid to have a backup plan. I mean, I, I got my degree. That was my backup plan, you right. know, but, uh, no, I, I just decided I was going to be a pro wrestler. So. Well, and you said you were in the reserves too. How much did, uh, did that involve? And did you think about maybe life in the military? No, I, that's why I wanted to, that's, I wanted to go to my two best friends in high school, went in the Marines yeah. and, uh. And they went active duty, but I, I, I wanted to see how tough I was. And, uh, and I, you know, I also, I'm patriotic, so I wanted to serve my country, but I didn't want to serve it full time. That, that, that was not for me. Cause <laughs> you know, so, uh, so I went to boot camp and infantry school and then I, you go into, then I went into the reserves, which is one weekend a month and two weekends every summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that for five years. Um, you know, after, uh, so I basically took a semester off of college, went to boot camp. Went, and then went back to college and then uh, and just did my uh, one weekend a month and two weeks every summer until my until my term of enlistment ended. Did it pay for your school? No, that you would you have to do active duty from to pay for your school. Oh, really? Oh, well, yeah. And I was like, nah, that's all right. It'll need to pay. <laughs> all right. So I, I can say thank you for serving. Right. Yeah, I still serve. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. No, I, it's still considered, you know, like uh, I was actually I didn't even realize because you know, I, I mean, like when people like I'm actually considered a veteran, even though I, to me, a veteran's a guy who fought in a war. Yeah. So I don't look at myself as a veteran, but I'm actually a veteran in the sense that uh, um, that I that I have like if I if I wanted to buy a new house, I can go through the veterans, uh, the VA. But I, did, uh-huh. I had no idea about that. I had no idea about any of that until somebody pointed it out to me uh, like a couple of years ago. And I looked I looked into it. But I, I always just thought that, you know, reserves, you didn't get the, um, you know, the same. um a lot of the benefits, but apparently you, you do get a lot of the same ones. Really? I mean, like, yeah. uh, uh, like healthcare and that kind of no, thing. No, no, that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like you don't no. get all that, right. but you still get the, uh, you still get the house thing. I think, um, you have to have done like X amount of, uh, you know, fulfill six years, get honorably discharged, you know, and whatever. I forget. There's a couple criteria. Yeah. But I mean, you did what a lot of people, a lot of young people never do and and they because they don't have that there's an option they can do that if they want but most don't and you could have been called up they could yeah, have yeah i mean somewhere. it could have i mean yeah. but there was no wars it, you know I, I went in in 84 february 10 feb 84 yeah. and there there were no wars on the horizon so i mean you know so i wasn't too worried about it but yeah. i mean it, it's not like now where you know you know, over the last 10 it's not like since 2001 it's you know basically all hands on deck but you know, and then, then before that with Desert Storm, but what, what year was that? That was like, uh, I forget. Yeah, it was before that. Um, but, but yeah, but like in 84, there, there wasn't anything on the horizon. Yeah. Well, but you never know. I mean. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no, you, still, know, you, know, you never know. I mean, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, Scott, before we, we really get into uh, how you got to uh, Larry Sharp's door, um, you know, you, you talk about throughout your career, you, you're this uh, dark uh, person uh, growing up. 
and and that certainly fueled a lot of your creativeness, uh, a lot of uh, of who you are. But I've never really heard, you know, the circumstances of that. And you talk as early as is five year old, five years old. You're like this lonely kid. Uh, could you give us a little background of 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 your childhood and and how that shaped who you are? Yeah, we moved a lot, and my dad couldn't tell me he loved me, and uh. I never um, never felt like I fit in, and. You know, and my dad would make my dad was a funny guy, really funny. And he would tease me and but it like like Don Rickles. So he'd be hilarious. Mm. And so but but I didn't realize it at the time, but it really screwed up my sense of self-worth, you Mm. know, Mm. because, you know, if if your dad's insulting you constantly, you know, I'm thinking I'm thinking it's not affecting me because, you know, even though he doesn't tell me he loves me, I know he does. And his jokes are so funny that it makes me laugh. But it just it destroys your psyche, you know, and, and your sense of self-worth. And so, you know, it probably wasn't until I was in my 40s that I finally got my shit together, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah. seeing a psychologist and all that. Huh. But also, do you think that uh, because, uh, you know, I, I certainly know about issues with this one, you know, growing up and, you know, I, I think uh, it is environment. I think it is people around you. But also, I think we're wired in certain ways when we come out that, uh, you know, that's just the way you are. And it has when you I, I think when you have that combination that it really, uh, you know, can turn you into that like tortured soul or whatever. But in some ways, there are benefits to it because yeah, there, there many are, are many of these people are incredibly creative people. Yeah. Well, not only that, but but it, it makes you driven to, to right, yeah. you know, it's like the, the guy. Um, one of the greatest interviews I've read was this. Uh, the guy who owns Oracle, Larry Ellison. Uh-huh. It's like a billion dollar company. Um, yeah. they, they, he had a rough childhood and, and he goes, um, and he goes, uh, what about now? How about your kids? He, no, he goes, um, he goes, that's what made me so good at business because I was striving to overcome. He goes, will your kids be uh, as good as you at business? He goes, no, but they're loved. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, it's like, you know, and, and he says it in a wistful sort of manner because, you know, like he's happy with all he's produced, but you know, if he would have been loved, then, you know, he never would have had the drive to create what he did, you know, yeah. and it's true. You, you don't. But it, it's and the, the thing is, is because you don't know the difference, you can't even look back and go, well, I'd rather, you know, if I had a trade off, I would rather be loved because you don't know what it feels like. So you can't even say so you still pick the way you were brought up because it's all, you know. Yeah. But and I also you know, think, too, and I think and I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is that you go one way or the other. Like you say, you 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 are uh, either you achieve, uh, you go down there. There's a fork, or you become a victim. And I, you know, and and you don't stay this average kid or average person. You go one way or the other because I know a yeah. lot of victims too that had that came from the same circumstances. You make that choice, or you do both. You um you achieve, but then you when you once you've achieved, then all of a sudden then it's empty because you're like, wait a minute, I was because the whole time you're you're striving to achieve. It's keeping the demons at bay because, you know, you're, you're fighting to get where you got. But once you get there, you're all like, well, I'm, now I'm here. Why aren't I satisfied? Yeah, and I was then, supposed to fix it, everything. Right, because you think it will. But even though you know it won't, but you even though you know by society standards that ah, happiness, money can't buy happiness, you do know that money makes makes it so much easier to live. Yeah, yeah. So, so you don't really – you kind of buy it, but you kind of don't buy it. But then when you realize once you've succeeded – and gotten really successful, then all of a sudden you look back and you go, well, why do I still feel crappy? And that's when the drugs and alcohol, you know, take you down. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I want to get uh, more into that too, but I, I will talk more about that when we get into the Raven character, but um, tell me how you ended up at the monster factory because it, it, it I, I, it changed my life, <laughs> but I have a feeling it changed your life a lot more. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go to wrestling school. I wanted to go to Malenko school I'd heard about, but, right. uh, but I couldn't find anybody who knew where, how to get a hold of them. And uh-huh. so the only schools I knew about were Larry Sharps because he had, he was in Sports Illustrated because uh, yeah. they did a profile on him because of Bam Bam, you know, flaming tattooed four hundred pounder, and uh, right. and then Ken Passarello's gym had one in like Massachusetts that I think was with uh, Tony Altamari or somebody. Right. And and, and were walk, you in Philly? Did you were you in Philly? Yeah, no, no. I lived in I lived in Florida. I grew up in Florida. I was oh, born okay. in Philly and lived there till I was nine. Uh, okay, and then so we started you're... moving a lot, and then we uh, we ended up in Florida. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so yeah, so I um, but I went to University of Delaware, so I was back up north. But then I went back to Florida after you know graduating. But then it was just you know like it was just a matter of choosing out of those couple places. So I chose uh, Larry Sharps, and uh, and then. Uh, you know, but then the thing was, he was never there. He was always in Japan with Bigelow. So he really didn't train me much. I mean, oh, really? ba- basically, Charlie Fulton, who was a, who was a, uh, you probably know him. Um, or no, maybe, yeah, you know, you weren't in WWE. Uh, no. I keep, never mind. You, is he, WWF, is he uh, uh, related to Bobby? No, no, no. He Not was, one of those um, Fultons? He was, no, no. <laughs> he was, um, he worked for WWF for years as an enhancement guy. And, oh, okay. uh, and had been in the business, you know, a journeyman for 20 years at that point, 30 years. And mm-hmm. really good worker, but just not a lot of charisma. And uh, so he trained me most of the time because Larry wasn't there. And um, and really, after about a month, Larry's like, well, it's nothing really I can teach you. He goes, you, you know, you pretty much know how to do everything. You know, yeah. you need to go out in the world and uh, now, you know, go in front of people. And right. uh, that's, what, that's what always amazes me that people take two years at wrestling school. I'm like, what are you possibly learning? You know, really? yeah, I mean, more moves. I mean, the, the moves you learn how to take back bumps in a couple of days, learn how to take, you know, hit the ropes in a couple of days, you know, or a week, you know, your headlock. I mean, you learn the basics you know, and, you know, it takes a month to learn the basics, but then you got to get in front of people. So I started sending my uh, tapes out to everywhere, you know, because back then there were like still like nine or ten territories. And then uh, finally got Memphis called after about uh- nine months. Really? Was that like uh, a connection with Lawler then? No, I didn't know him. I just kept sending my tape. Yeah, but know? I mean, he was. He said like yeah. uh, he contacted you and said, "Hey." Yeah, Lawler called me up and said, uh, oh. "You start on uh, Monday." You know, a lot of people don't realize because you know, they they know the King, they know Jerry in the ring, but they don't realize what an influence he was down there uh, with that territory, oh, and, yeah, and how many bigger. guys were there. You know, he's bigger than Austin is in yeah. Memphis. He's bigger than Hogan. He's bigger. I mean, he's like El Santo, you know, <laughs> El Santo big, Ricky Dozan big in, in Memphis. So when you go down there, I mean, you, you you said you had the basic moves, but you're still, you must still be pretty damn green. Oh, I'm horribly green. I mean, <laughs> after the month of training, he said, yeah. you know, I, I still went to the school a couple days a week, you know, just to, yeah. to practice new stuff and to learn new stuff, you know, but, uh, but you yeah, do that show with me. What's that? I said, and to do that show with me, of course, you had to be there yes. for those few months. Of that of I caught you had a good time. <laughs> so I had like I had like either seven to nine. I had seven matches or nine matches. I can't remember which. Uh, oh, while I was oh. in this nine month period, 
Yeah. Um, in this nine month period before uh, they called me to go to Memphis. And then, uh, so, yeah, so when I got there, they went, they expected me to go over, like I knew what I was doing and I had no idea. I didn't have, I didn't even have a finish cause I didn't expect to go over. And, uh, so they go, what's your finish? I go, uh, clothesline. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which, which is lame as it is. It's not <laughs> that lame. It's not as lame as it sounds now because yeah. it wasn't used by a million people a million times in a million matches, but yeah. it still, it still was incredibly lame. And they go, we have somebody that does that. I go, off the second? Yeah. <laughs> That's the best I could come up with on short notice. Like, cause, you know, they just call, they go, they called me into the bathroom where they booked the finishes. Yeah. And they go, what's your finish? And I was like, what? Uh, yeah. You know, but, and then um, after, so the first, um, so they sent me out there with this job guy, uh, Keith Eric, um, and uh, told me to go four minutes. I went like a minute and a half and forgot everything I ever learned. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, that's all I, I couldn't remember anything. And uh, so Good. nervous. Yeah. And uh, so then uh, they go, well, we told you to go four. I'm like, oh, oh sorry. Uh, like, I just played it off. And then that night, they had me wrestle uh, ja Jimmy Jack Funk, Jesse Barr. Huh? And uh, we were supposed to go 15-minute uh, Broadway, a 15-minute draw. And, uh, and so we're working... And uh, he, g he gives me the Iggy, like he squeezes my wrist, you know, so I can know signifying to me that I need to reverse it. Yeah. I don't know what he's talking about. He squeezes <laughs> my wrist again. I'm like, why is he squeezing my wrist? <laughs> squeezes it a third time. I'm like, maybe he wants me to reverse it. I reverse it. He's like, yeah, I get this now. Because you couldn't, the locker rooms were in separate sides. You couldn't talk before the match. I never even met the guy before, wow. you know. Really? And, you didn't you know, get a I'm chance out there terrified. What's that? You, you, you had no chance. They didn't go over it at all, like the last, you know, couple of minutes before you no, go. No, no, I mean, they sent a tape recorder saying that this is the finish, you know, between the locker rooms. Yeah. The ref right, would bring okay. it back and forth, but that's all you got. Right. And we yeah. were going Broadway, so we didn't have a finish. We just said, go Broadway, go 15 minute Broadway. Uh. So uh, he made me look like a million bucks, so they thought I was talented. And then the next night, they had me team with uh, this guy, Ricky Nelson. Um, Against these guys, the Zebra Warriors, who were like 5'4", with masks that had like uh, hair, like a mohawk sticking out, mohawk of hair sticking out the top of the mask. Yeah. And uh, and they were horrendous, too. And so we went out there and we stunk the joint. I mean, it was humiliating. I mean, we were so bad, it was humiliating. And they're like, oh, you suck. And so then they made me a job guy, too. <laughs> uh well, it was probably a very, you know, fortunate for you because you could actually learn what you were doing out there. But before we get, I mean, you mentioned they, they used to, I, I have never heard that before, that they would have a tape recorder and the guy say, this is what I want to do. And they would take the tape recorder over to the other locker room or what? I've no, never... the, if, if you're in separate locker rooms, the, yeah. the, basically the, the, the Booker, uh, you know, Lawler or Jarrett, depending on who it is, would yeah. give all the finishes. And so the ref would queue up your finish and say, all right, here's your finish. And then he goes, and then he played to the, go to the next guy. Here's your finish, and he play it, and it just went to everybody and played their finishes for him. And then so there's no mistake in it, so there's no translation mistake through the ref. Right. And then he takes the tape to the other locker room and he plays it for everybody else. Was that a Memphis thing? Or was that common in other territories? Um, I've I never heard of that before. I'm telling common. you, huh? I think it was pretty common, you know. On town, I mean, some some buildings, you know, locker room was connected, you know, but some they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. And so when they weren't, um, yeah, it's pretty standard, I would imagine. It, but I guess that's but, ingenious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before using tape recorders, they probably the ref would just give you the finish. Yeah. Right, yeah. So thanks. I mean, that's all it is. But uh, so when did you start to get it? Like and it was it in later. Memphis? 
huh? two weeks later. Oh wow! So you're yeah. I mean, I picked it up incredibly fast. Like after like a, after like a month, I was like, uh, I was watching guys who'd been working for 10, 15 years that were just terrible, and I was like, why aren't why aren't I getting a push? Yeah. You know. But but this business is it's re- perceptions reality, and right. so the perception was that I sucked because I came in and I sucked. So <laughs> and they gave me a chance, so they're not gonna. So I would have had to leave to come back to get a push, you know, yeah. which which I did, but. Um, but also me and Marty Gennetti became really close friends and we would hang out every day uh-huh. and every night. So I, you know, so I'm picking a brain, his brain, which, you know, was, you know, great learning experience. And, um, and now how uh, much experience that he had at that point? Cause he was pretty, oh, yeah, no, he, they'd already been to WWF and got fired oh. your first night in already. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but they were getting ready to go back cause then they went back and started their big run. Uh, like right after, right after this. But listen okay. to this territory. There was, it was me. Well, I mean, not that I was anybody then, but, uh, but me, uh, the the Harris brothers. That was their first territory. Scott Steiner, his first territory. Um, Jeff Jarrett, Billy Jarrett, Billy Joe Travis. Um, the Rock and Roll Express were there. The Midnight Rockers were there. Oh. Um, yeah, they were fresh off of AWA territory. So they right. were still, they were still super hot off of the, off of that. And, uh, and they were working the, the midnight, uh, the Rock and Roll Express. Uh, Lawler was there. Um, Yokozuna was there. Uh, Big Samu was there. Um, they were a tag team. Um, who else was there? A couple others, but it was like, you know, it's like a territory. Like five to five, ten years later, I mean, you had like, a, if all of us were there at the same time again, that would have been like the hottest territory ever, you know? Yeah, and they all were in the WWF. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so we're talking. This is like '88. So yeah, this is yeah, these guys are pretty established at that point. Um, yeah, so this is like February of '88 to yeah. like to um, February, March, yeah. April, May. Yeah, probably like May. Yeah. And Something so like you're that. just you're just working all these different uh, territories, I guess, uh, as they say, honing your craft. Yeah, but, I mean, and from there, I basically started getting a push, and. As yeah. soon as I left there, I got a push, and I've always had a spot on the card ever since. You know, other yeah. than uh, I guess, other than really my WWF uh, run, yeah. second run, where yeah. you know, I mean, I did have, you know, I mean, if you look at it from the perspective of a fan, it was a pretty good spot with the hardcore stuff. Oh yeah, but I mean, if you look at it from my perspective, you know, it, it wasn't that great a spot. You know, but yeah. whatever. Hindsight's yeah. like twenty twenty. So, I mean, was the, and this is probably an obvious question, but uh, did you really consider, was that, that first run with, uh, with WCW, like your break, you know, where you really felt like, okay, uh, I'm kind of uh, ma- moving my way up among the elite in professional Yeah, life. yeah, I yeah. really did. I thought I was making it somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, and Dusty uh, had, had told me he had big plans for me because I, I, after I went left, Tennessee, Memphis. I went to a Florida Championship Wrestling. Right. And then from there, I went to uh, Vancouver, Canada for a month. Then I went to Portland for two years, where I where I actually learned how to work. That's where I really learned how to work because, you know, you work literally literally six nights a week. Wow. Um, maybe maybe three weeks a year it's five nights, but then there's like three weeks a year where it's seven nights. So you're averaging six nights a week. Um, so that's 300 plus days a year, you know, Wow! and you're going 15 minutes every night. Um, and that, and it's, and it's a territory with either young guys coming up or old or guys who are past their prime going down. 
So it's, you know, so you have a lot of talented workers there and, and man, that's where I learned how to work, you know, and, uh, and listen, learn to listen to a crowd. Right. And, uh, so how did that call come? How did they notice you with, uh, you know, was it through one of the guys you knew or Dusty got a tape or what, what happened? Um, well, first they were interested in me when I was in Portland and, uh, yeah. Jim Ross called and, uh, but I didn't think I was ready yet. Not realizing that you have to go when opportunity knocks because they may not yeah. be when they want you, you may. And, you know, I thought I would, me getting better would improve my, my chances, you know, of my positioning later, but yeah. they weren't interested later because they, Jim Ross also thought I blew him off, but I didn't, but that's uh -huh. a whole long story that I'm yeah. going to go into. But yeah. suffice to say is, so then I went to global um, wrestling after I left Portland and uh, which was on ESPN every day at four o'clock. So I still had, so now I'm starting to have some national exposure. And then from there, DDP got me a tryout, I think at WCW. And, uh, cause I knew him from the gym, um, in, in Atlanta where I lived, where I moved to. And, yeah. I was going to uh, ask you about that. Cause I, I, I thought there was a connection before WCW and that's what it was just from uh, being in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. I moved to Atlanta when I left Portland because I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't think I was getting in WWE because the guy was landed a giant, you know what I mean? Everybody was 280 yeah. or better. And, you know, I was barely 220. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not going there, but, uh, so I got, I figured WCW, they're based in Atlanta. That's, that's my best opportunity. So that's where I moved. And then, and then I got the global, um, which was in Texas, but they would just fly us in and out. And then, um, and then DDP, I met him at the gym, uh, cause we all, everybody trained at, um. Uh, it was uh, in uh, Sting and Lex had a gym called the Main Event, and uh, and the only people that trained there basically were strippers and wrestlers. So yeah. it was like the greatest gym ever. <laughs> How did you get uh, any work done? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, but you got enough done. And <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, so me and DDP became good friends, and he got me a tryout, and then um, they hired me, and uh, and Dusty had big plans for me, but yeah. then Watts came in and Watts didn't like me and uh, Watts gave me the kibosh. Although Watts claims years later I talked to him, he goes, he goes, hey, if it wasn't for me, there wouldn't be a Raven. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, if I wouldn't have fired you, you wouldn't have went off and became <laughs> Raven. I was like, well, well if you want to, this kind of not really your response. It's not, you're not really getting any credit for this because, but. Yeah. You know, but what do you think it was with Watts? Was it because, uh, I mean, the old school, uh, because I, I imagine right from the beginning, you had your own ideas about trying yeah. new things. Yeah, uh, what you... I, I was just, I was too young. I had too big a mouth and I was too young to have that big a mouth. Now, like years later, I mean, I still had as big a mouth, but, but you know, once you have a certain amount of, of seasoning and reputation, you can get away with it. You know, it's still not advantageous to your career because it never, you know, me talking I always had to prove that I was the smartest guy in the room, even when I wasn't. But I still had to try to prove I was, and uh, and that's the worst thing you can do. And yeah, yeah, I consistently did it time and again because of my because of my insecurities. Because yeah. it's really so you never learned you never learned not to talk. No, I, I knew I better. just I couldn't stop it. It was like <laughs> I was so insecure that that I had a. It's like um. See, anybody who's an egomaniac is insecure. Because the only reason people brag is because they're insecure. And so I was extremely insecure. So I would have to brag and be the smartest guy in the room, even if it was detrimental and destructive to my career, because it is the only way I felt like I could like be recognized, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And then, like you it, said, it's, the... it's like, it's like, it's like you're drowning and like, and you know, you, and you know, not to say something, 
you know not to bring it up, but it's like you're drowning and you have to yell it out to save yourself, <laughs> yeah. even though you know that's just going to make you drown even deeper. <laughs> yeah, you, you have no control over yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you do, well, but you don't. Yeah, but you think, uh, you know, like some of the, and I'm sure you've met hundreds of them along the way, but some of the biggest celebrities in the world, the most insecure people you'd ever. Oh, yeah. And that's why they, that's why they're so successful because they're so driven because they're so insecure. They're trying to, they're trying to fill this void and doing anything they can. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Exactly. Uh, So you get to, uh, you get to WCW, which is a big deal. Uh, And uh, you know, uh, they give you this, this uh, Scotty Flamingo gimmick. Um, which probably couldn't have been too far off. I mean, a, a surfer yeah. dude from Florida, you could probably do that pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was still basically I was a chicken shit heel, which is what Scotty the Body was. So it didn't, it didn't phase me. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. you know, it was, it was more, it was fine. I mean, it, I didn't have a problem with it. But you were close to DDP, and, I, and I've talked with DDP, uh, you know, before about that whole he, heel um you know, his, his psychology about it. And like you mentioned, you said, you kind of triggered that because you said chicken shit heel. And he's like, that isn't really worth anything when it comes down to it. And at that point, is he in your ear? And, and, uh, cause I know he, he later on with the, uh, Raven character, he kind of helped you do that, but was you know, he, he pointed, uh, very influential? He pointed, he, he pointed out years later when I was trying to come up with the Raven character oh. that, that I couldn't, that being a chicken shit heel wasn't going to get me anywhere because nobody was buying it. I mean, no bookers were buying it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't agree with the sense of you're saying that he, if, that he says that they're not money drawing characters because they are, you yeah. know, but you, but unfortunately. But no, no, I'm saying my point is though, he's saying like there's so, there's so many, that's kind of like, that's what the, I guess, you know, the, the model yeah, or whatever you look at. That's what most, most heels, yeah. Yeah, the problem with most heels are they don't get frustrated it's like when I teach seminars, you know, it's like the beginning of the match is the shine. Then the heel gets the heat uh-huh. and then to come back and go home. Except I don't think it's, I don't think it's really the shine. I don't think it's about the baby face getting over. I think it's more about the heel getting frustrated. Mm-hmm. You know, so I teach it as the heel gets frustrated, then the heel cheats and then the heel gets heat. And then the baby face makes it come back because, but you, ne- cause you never see the heel get frustrated in the beginning, but really why is he going to cheat unless he's frustrated? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So the whole beginning of the match is really more, yeah, it's about establishing a baby face, but it's really more about establishing how, how infuriated the heel is going to get, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, and so being a chicken shit heel involves that to another whole nother level. And, and, and there may be, I don't know. I don't watch it now. I haven't watched it in years, yeah. but, but there really aren't a lot of chicken shit heels because everybody wants to be a tough guy. You know, everybody. I didn't want to be a tough guy because there's a million of them. You know, yeah. I, mean, I don't need that. I didn't need that to assuage my ego. You know, that wasn't one. Of, that wasn't part of what I was worried about. I, I'd been through that in college when I fought everybody that looked at me funny. Yeah. You know, so I'd already got that out of my system. But so I didn't. And plus, in this business, I wasn't. You know, no matter how tough I was, or thought I was, or could have, or might have been, which I'm, which I'm not. I mean, I'm not saying I'm that tough. But you know, no matter how tough I would have thought I was. Well, you have Steiners and Hakus. I mean, yeah. this, is the, this is the this is the toughest business in the in the world, right. you know. So I I never considered myself anywhere near any of these guys' level. So I was like, well, I don't need to be a chick. I don't need to be a tough guy. And besides, being a tough guy makes it harder to get to get heat because yeah. I mean, not to get heat, but to get to make your character interesting. It makes it tougher because 
it, the the t- the more badass you are, the more people like you because you kick ass. Yeah. So, and and that's why when I became Raven, I had to become a badass to overcome the albatross of Johnny Polo. So I had yeah. to be a badass. Yeah. But I but I made it so I would get I would get heat by being a whiner, which is because nobody likes a whiner. Yeah. So <laughs> no I kidding. Was, so I was the toughest guy in ECW. You know, or one of the toughest guys in ECW, you know, and my character I'm talking about, my yeah. character was, you know, like he wouldn't, he, you know, if he was in a chokehold, he, he would pass out instead of tapping out, you know, but because he just, you know, he liked the pain. So, yeah. but I found a way. And if, when you do that, that's why the road warriors are always turned baby face. That's why I said vicious is always turned baby face mm-hmm. because the people like them. Right. So they're over. I found a way to be a tough guy. And unlikable at the same time, but yeah, but go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying. So, so you know, and that's why chicken shit heel makes it so much easier to get heat because people hate people that are cunts, basically. Yeah. You know, but, but getting into the but getting into the psychology of the uh, psychology of this, and I imagine you must have started thinking earlier on before you, before you really established Raven that. Uh, the, uh, blurring the lines a little bit on this because, like you said, it was it was it used to be very clear cut heel baby face, you know, but you brought in that whole psychological emotional part of it that made people start thinking about this character, and you could have as many people hating your guts as liking you in an arena, which was it's a, a bizarre well, thought, you know what I mean? Well, it, it's actually one of the proudest things I ever did in my career. Wow. Because when I went to ECW, Paulie had decided it, it, it was part of the way the business was at that point because yeah. there's so many smart fans and the and the way that the business was that guys were, you know, they were basically booing the baby faces, cheering the heels. You know, the audience was becoming a part of the show. And and I said, and Paulie thought there was, you know, a lot of, a lot of very smart people in the business thought that the tweeners was all was the was going to be the last refuge, but yeah. when I came in, I was like, no, I go, you have to be a you have to have heels and baby faces because to set up a tempo and a match and to build storylines, you have to have somebody get heat and have to have yeah. somebody make a comeback yeah. and it build to, and to build a drama whether it's you know in movies, books, television, you know or whatever. And so I said, I'm going to be a heel, and everybody who sides with me is going to be a heel. And everybody I fight is going to be a babyface. And so I literally forced the company out of tweenership and into babyfaces and heels. Yeah. And that's one of the proudest things I did. And um, and when I got there, Dreamer was 85% booed, even though he was a babyface. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so I had to literally turn him into a Superman and build, and make myself hated. Now, the, the part where you say that, that because of the psychological games – that there's yeah. going to be a portion of the audience that likes you. Yeah, there's always going to be 10% that you can't account for. I mean, yeah. that, that goes without saying. But I'm pretty proud of the fact that I kept it 90%, 90-10, you know, against Raven, as opposed to 50-50 or, you know, whatever else I could have done, you know. Yeah, but I I, I think it was, uh, I, I think you had more people, and, and however you want to describe it, but they couldn't help but like the guy because you were you, you stood up against everything like you yeah, were just like except, this. Except, but if you think if you really think back to the time period, yeah. I would always when when they would start to like me too much, I would do yeah. something more despicable, yeah. like I would take the same man's kid. You know, right? 
Okay. So, All right. We I would I really want to get into that because but I want to kind of do it along here because I think as you mentioned, like the albatross of Johnny Polo and yeah. that and that WWE experience was what took you to another level once you got to Raven. So uh tell me about that experience arriving at the WWE, how the hell that came about and what it was like. Well, was I like was in you? Memphis and they and WWF was um was interested. And so they called Jerry Jarrett and they told him they wanted to have me be um, this polo playing manager. And I, there was really no, you know, the Memphis was the only territory left, basically. And mm. I just left WCW before that. So I was like, I really but didn't feel like, what? Option. What's that? I mean, I know you, you want to go to the WWE. I mean, who, yeah, who I don't want to be a manager. But at though. the same time, you've always been kind of anti establishment or whatever. You, but, but why aren't you thinking like a, a Johnny Polo, I'm going to be some, you know, Greenwich punk. I mean, yeah, I, I, it didn't, it didn't fit me, but I mean, but I wasn't going to turn down the job because it was six <laughs> right. figures, yeah. and, but I also didn't want to be a manager, you know, yeah. and, uh, but because of my size, they wanted to make me a manager. So I figured, all right, I'll do this and I'll plot my next move. But remember, I'd only been in the business for what, uh, five years at that point. I mean, yeah, four five years. Years, yeah. Five years. That's yeah. Great. So, I mean, I, I, I was still green as hell, you know? And they yeah. and they put me in. They gave me an office in Titan Tower. Made me a producer, um, of an associate producer of Monday Night Raw. How did um, that happen? Though I mean, did you have Lawler was Lawler was away. experience, or they just wanted Lawler, to give you something else to do? No, Lawler was away, and yeah. uh, they needed somebody to do commentary with Vince on a superstar show. So they brought me in. Huh? Vince saw that I came prepared with notes and gags and all kinds of stuff, and he liked that. And huh? so he offered me a producer job. And so huh. they gave me an office across from Pat and Bruce on Pat and Bruce on the fourth floor. My God. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine what. And then and then probably you got to see Howard a lot too. Yeah, Howard is right across the Howard Pat the offices were Howard, Pat Bruce, or Pat Bruce, Pat Howard Bruce. I forget the order. Oh my and God. then and I was in the desk that faced all three of those. And uh the office. And uh but I don't like I said, I only been in the business full time yeah. four years at that point uh-huh yeah so i mean you know it was uh it was and i, I was already like I, I, it's not where i want to be i don't want to be in the office you know mm -hmm. and i was being groomed to be on a booking committee and i was like i don't want to do this i want to wrestle uh -huh. so it was it was just a matter of uh finding the right opportunity and then when they decided to take me off tv because Vince, at some point after about a year, Vince was like, you know, you're really not Johnny Polo. Your speech pattern. I go, yeah, I know. You're I like, no shit. <laughs> you're like, no shit, really? Yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, but, <laughs> but you know, Shane McMahon should have been Johnny Polo. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, but, we uh, kind of saw that later with the. Yeah, with the Mean Street Pot, <laughs> which I was actually a real member of. Because uh, I used to hang out with Shane and, and, uh, and um, Joey Abs and. Uh, Pete Gaz and Rodney, like we all, and Shane, we'd all hang out. Like when I lived up in Stanford, when I was a producer. So I, I'm an actual member of the actual Mean Street Posse, one, yeah. as opposed to the uh, the television version. Yeah, well, that's funny. But uh, yeah, you probably pissed Vince off a few times for taking Shane out. Uh, oh, I, I infuriated. <laughs> dropping him off at the lawn in the morning. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he would end up sleeping in my house, so he'd call home at 4 a.m. and go, "Hey, Dad, I'm sleeping." He goes, "Hey, Vic," because I would call Vince Vic. When, on commentary, uh, like I didn't know what his name was, you know, because it's a funny gag. Right, and right. Uh, 
So Shane, Shane thought it was funny, so he would call his dad Vic. So oh, he'd God. go, so he'd go, hey Vic, I'm staying at Johnny Polo's tonight. All right, I'll see you in the morning. And I was like, so, you know, and all the boys thought I was sucking up to Shane, but what I was really doing was was annihilating my career, getting heat with Vic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, always- you know, but but yeah. I'm self destructive, so I, you know, I'm like, I don't care, uh-huh. you know. And so, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, so then they took me off of television when, uh, off as the wraparound shows and All American. And just strictly producer, and that's when I was like, nope, I got to quit now. I want to wrestle. So I um, I called DDP up, and I said, you know, uh, oh, no, I know what it was. I, I was watching. I moved to Philadelphia to start doing indies, to start rebuilding my name and change the character and build this whole new character of Raven. And But I knew I needed to be on TV for it. So I called DDP. You know, so I saw ECW one day on TV, and I was like, wow, I was blown away. It was the best show I'd ever seen. So I called Paige and said, you're good friends with Paulie. Call in a favor and get me on the show. So hmm. so he called Paulie, and um, long story short, uh, Paulie uh, basically thought I was coming in to do like a comedy version of, of Johnny, like a grunge comedy ca- character, like, you know, right. like a grunge version of Johnny Polo. But I had, a, you know, completely other plans. And, and so when he saw what I was creating. So you were already starting to, you had already started to create Raven. Yeah. He he got it. He got it more than I did at first. Oh, like, really? yeah, like bookers always see themselves through a certain through a character's eyes. Uh-huh. Like Vince always saw himself through the Patriot Lex Luger and through the Million Dollar Man's eyes. Like those are the two characters that he always. That's who he viewed himself as, and bookers always do that. Like, yeah. um, the uh, and Paulie saw himself through Dreamer and through me, you uh-huh. know, and so that me and Paulie's working relationship. You know, it was phenomenal. I mean, I annoyed the crap out of him because that's who I was. But, you know, business wise, I mean, it was like, you know, he was he was the uh, Scorsese to my De Niro, you know. Yeah. So he recognized uh, when you got all this stuff to spewing out of you, you got all these ideas and, and you know, and, and he, ju- he just took it in. And was he able to, I, I don't know, uh, put it into produce order it. or what he we could do? It. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, everybody needs a producer. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, if you look, if you look at Hogan, his best stuff was the original WWE, WWF, E, whatever letter it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, when he was, um, when he was in there to first, like when he first, not when he first went there when he was a heel, but when he was first there as a babyface in like '84, '85. Yeah. That was his best stuff because he was being produced. Once he became so huge. You know, it became harder. I think it became harder to produce him because he he knew what he wanted. But unfortunately, everybody needs to be produced. You know. And and for you, that was Heyman. I don't know if you ever found anybody else who really could do that. But it's it's fortunate that he came along at that time, or that yeah, you connected. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, it wouldn't have worked with anybody else. Yeah. You know, or any other company. I mean, I was supposed to go to Smoky Mountain for Cornette. And he kept blowing. He kept saying, "I'll bring you in next month," and the next month became the next month. But because I knew I needed a TV show to get my character over because mm-hmm. it's not something that you just get over doing indies with, you know, because I, I needed episodic storytelling, you know, because I'm a storyteller. So mm-hmm. I needed I needed the episodicness of, of 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 a TV show, you know, how one week builds to the next week and it builds to the next week, which yeah. I learned in Portland. And that's what I needed. And when and thank God Cornette blew me off, because if he wouldn't have blown me off. Um, and pushed it back and pushed it back. I never would have got it. I never would have caught ECW on TV because I unfortunately 
had heard had heard all bad things about ECW that it was a garbage wrestling and this and that. And then I finally watched an episode and I was just taken aback. I was like, this is the most ferociously powerful, crazy, nut show, nut bar of a show. You know, it, it's yeah. like the uh, it's like Rocky Horror meets pro wrestling. Yeah. And it's kind of it was kind of that, uh, I don't know, like a real edge to it. And and uh, I mean, I guess uh, we, we refer to it like hardcore, but it was, you know, was certainly edgy. different. Yeah, it was yeah, edgy. Exactly. It was what it was was a re- you know there was hardcore, but it was a revolution in pro wrestling. Yeah. You know, wrestling ne- never gave out clean finishes hardly ever at that point in time. You know, because it was all squash matches, so guys would never want to do you know. So the guys um, would only ever win. So when they had to face other guys, nobody wanted to do a job. So it was always a count right. out or you yeah. know whatever disqualification. Um, yeah, we, we would. Paulie went to all clean finishes. You know. Um, so that was one thing, you know, nobody no. sat in, and, and the boys had gotten lazy and wrestled TV like it was a house show where they'd sit in a hold, you know, and milk it. There's nothing wrong with a hold if you're working a hold. But if you're just sitting in a hold, you know, it, it you know, it's tiresome, especially if you're doing it on TV when, you know, when the MTV generation had already started where people were had short attention spans. And so he changed that. He started using like real music as opposed to, you know, you know, made homemade music like, you know, WWF would have a, but Jim Johnson making all the music, not that yeah. he did a great job, but right. it's not the same as hearing Metallica, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, so did uh, you so see that, do you think that at that time, uh, that, uh, you know, ECW was, you know, there was the rebels, it was, you know, we were, uh, doing it our way in a sense yeah, that, that hadn't been, it wasn't being done anywhere else. Was that well, kind of feeling that, but, but also all the guys there, the, I was the only regular who who had like now they brought in Terry Funk and Dory Funk and yeah. a lot of names, but I was the only guy who'd been around the business who this wasn't their first territory who was a regular. So yeah. as far as they knew, I mean, you asked the ask Bubba Ray, he'll tell you. As far as they knew, they thought every company in the business was like ECW. You know, Paulie yeah. would give a State of the Union every three weeks at the ECW arena, and he would have you wanting like the guys were just drinking the Kool-Aid and yeah. like, and I would, and I was like, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid, but by the end of his speech, I'm like, I'll drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> it was so right. motivational. Cause, yeah. Cause Paulie saw himself as Vince Lombardi. That's who he, that's who he really? thought of himself as like, he saw the world through Raven and dreamers eyes, but he felt like he was Vince Lombardi or that's, that's who he aspired to be uh-huh. because he's, you know, Lombardi's the greatest coach ever, you know, or, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's, I, now it's probably arguable, but at that point, he was the greatest coach ever. And um, this was his stage. Yeah, and this was his stage, yeah. you know. And that's why Paulie took himself off TV so he could direct traffic, you know, and and not be involved with it, you know, not be on camera where it's going to detract from the product. Um, so, which I, which I really think a booker should never work. Yeah. Um, he should never be on camera unless it's just for minor stuff because you can't. It's so hard to run the show as it is to make it top shelf, but then also to have to do the all the stuff that it requires required of a booker is just it's way too much work to get every to get both jobs done successfully. Um, all right, so tell me about. I mean, this is where Raven really is born and and uh, you know starts to grow up. I guess the way to put it, but give me the blueprints on because you didn't know you probably had a you know the vision in your mind. But until you step into the ring and until you are in front of uh, a few thousand people, you really don't know what that reaction is. So 
No, the I blueprint. Knew. Give I knew. me the blueprint of Raven going into it before you. What are you thinking? Because you really tapped into a generation at the time. Yeah, I mean, I caught the cultural zeitgeist, but but yeah. I knew that. I mean, I knew. Did you? I knew that I tapped into something because misfits always. There's always misfits, you know, whether they're whether they were the beatniks in the fifties or the you know the whatever in the you know the. The, uh, the outcasts, the outsiders. The outcasts, the, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's always that, and there's always, and and even if, I mean, they're only twenty percent of the crowd, but but the fact is, everybody knows what they are, and everybody yeah. hates them because they're different. Everybody hates them because they, uh, they're considered whiners and complainers, and because they don't want to fit in, and yeah. so people don't like that. Yeah. And and I knew that I knew I knew my psychology was stronger. You know, it's like they say, I know my Kung Fu is stronger than your Kung Fu. Yeah. <laughs> but I knew my psychology was stronger than anybody's. Because yeah. I learned from the grappler in Portland, um, who uh, who was so talented, the, the grappler was Linden, that when he was in his first territory, was his first major territory was for Watts, and he was 5'10", 240, and he worked on top, and he was a huge draw for Watts. And for Watts to put a 5'10 guy on top... Mm-hmm. Um, that green and he had to have something special yeah. and so the grappler's psychology was beyond question and i picked his brain for two straight years and um and i knew my psychology was strong and I, plus the fact that everybody was tweeners made it e- my job even easier because i knew that i would get heat um like i would do little things too like when i like stevie was my um stevie was a great heat getter great heat getter yeah. um but then I would abuse him and get him sympathy. And like, I do little things like instead of sl- right. like slap him, I give him the backhand because a backhand's more dismissive. A slap yeah. is mean. A backhand is, is cruel. Yeah. So, and so it's little things like that, that all add up to make the, the John, the part, the parts add up to be greater than the whole. Okay. And, but, uh, t- but, but, but talk, and this is, this is fascinating because when you, you talk about the psychology of wrestling and, and, and it's kind of, uh, I don't know, two dimensional in a way, because you, you know, you, you have the heel and he does something nasty to his opponent, to the baby and it's heat and he, and it's pretty simple. But were you thinking all this time, like, I mean, you started getting into the layers of this where, you know, you're messing with them emotionally and you're, when were you starting to think about and, and how you thought that would get over how that would be. But see, but that's always great. Wrestling to me was always, was always the psychological pain because I, well, I knew it, I knew it for numerous reasons, but I also, I mean, I could, I could, I could verbalize it too, but I also, that's how the best wrestling always was. You know, uh-huh. it's psychologically driven because yeah. here's the thing. I can steal your girlfriend. Right. Yeah. And that, that no, I mean, I, I'm sorry. Your girlfriend cheats on you. Uh, hang on. How's, how's my theory go? The, <laughs> I had one that I used all the time that yeah. I was just trying to re-remember it. Yeah. Um, oh, if you get beat up physically, it hurts, but it goes away. If somebody yeah. steals your girlfriend, that doesn't go away for a long time. Yeah. So. There's a difference between physical pain, which is when heels normally would just beat a guy up. Yeah. And so they, they the fans would be mad because yeah, you're you know, a bad guy for beating him up. Right. Because he got beat up, the physical pain. Yeah. But the emotional pain, you take the guy's girlfriend. Whoa, that's gonna that's that's definitely gonna be pain. That's gonna hurt a much longer time. Right. So I knew that. Um, 
And the best wrestling, I'm trying to think of a good example now. Oh, greatest example of that is the people wanted to turn to Rock Babyface um, when he was the Rock, when he was the million dollar champion or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the, they built it and built it. And just as the Rock was about to turn Babyface, he stayed heel. And the place went bananas and hated him. And it was such a great psychological maneuver. But And he didn't even have to beat anybody up. Or another great example was um, the uh, Flair. I think Dusty was, uh, wait, was it? Oh, Flair was fighting the Russians or something in a cage. One of the Russians. He's getting, then they, they triple team him. Dusty comes in to make the save. And Flair just walks out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't throw one punch. And yeah. the Russians did all the physical work of all the ass kicking. But the heat's on Flair, not on the Russians. I mean, there's heat on the Russians. But the real heat's on Flair because he did something despicable. Yeah. He deserted somebody who not only came out to help him when he was getting his ass kicked, but then he turned around and deserted him. I mean, how despicable is that? Yeah. And that's the best wrestling to me. That's the stuff that always motivated me. And that's the stuff I wanted to do. And the best way to do it is to become a three-dimensional character so that the audience knows that how you'll behave in any situation. And but also you surprise them all the time though, with so, like just as they think of how you can be so despicable and so cruel to somebody and then you take it to another level. Right. Uh, then, then, then they start to like you because, because <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there's something likable about a guy who's that devious. So you start <laughs> to like him, and then he, then he uh, takes this, then he takes your, his opponent's kid away from him and has his kid say, daddy, you're, I hate you. You're a drunk. Uh, I love Raven. You know, and then boom, everybody knows about, you know, like everybody knows somebody. You drove him to drink. Right. (laughs) He already drank, but, 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 but here's the thing. Everybody, everybody, even though that doesn't affect everybody, everybody knows somebody whose wife or husband has used the child in the divorce as a weapon. It's the most, it's the cruelest thing you can do to a kid is use him as a weapon. And that's what we did. We used the kid as a weapon and him and his wife's. Because his wife was my valet, his estranged wife, you know. So what what meaner thing can you do? And even though most people hadn't experienced it, they all know somebody who has or can imagine the pain of their own kid being used as a weapon because it's it's the worst thing you can do to a kid, yeah. you know. And so that's that's the that's the games I love playing, you know. Because I would never do it in real life, but that's what I that's what I loved about wrestling because. You know, it was it was acting, but it was acting crossed with rock starism. Yeah, and you could get away with it. I mean, you uh, you know right. that that. But were there, like, when you got into this character, and it was really over? Uh, did you feel like there was just no limits? Like, well, I'm just going to try this, or I'm going to see how this, because you got that confident with with the, uh, you know, what you were doing with the character. I never thought there were limits anyway. I mean, I, I don't believe in limits. You but know, you, you found one though. I mean, with the the cross and the nah, uh, oh, even to you, I'll, even. Okay, first of all, there was no. Okay, here, here's and here's what I'll say about that because I was thinking of using that as an example. Yeah. All right, we, we I crucified the Sandman because I took three. I took a couple weeks off to go to rehab because I was having an emotional breakdown, and uh, so I went to rehab to to dry up, and uh, when I came back, I wanted to do something that had impact. So I thought, why don't I crucify the Sandman? Because if I think I'm a martyr for society's dysfunction, I'm going to make him feel my pain, you know? And so we did that. But then 
the audience reacted the exact right way. It was Japan heat. It was quiet heat. It was I was in the I was in the middle of the ring. I know what the audience responded. Shocked. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was wow. <laughs> but here's the thing: the um, even if we all went over the line, you never apologize because we're the extreme promotion. You right. just bite the bullet and you went okay. If we went over, if we would have went over the line, I would have said, well, we went over the line, but oh well. You know, it happens. It's going to happen when you play up near the line. But yeah. unfortunately, because Kurt Angle was there and he, they were trying to hire him, trying to get him to come into wrestling, and he was just a guest, you know, because in his mind, we're just m- mocking the cross. But, you mm. know, but I just use it as religious iconography to me as a metaphor, you know, just like people doing art all the time. And the audience got it because that's who our audience was. They were smart. But, you know, but Kurt, he was he was a guest. Taz joined in, and then of course I'm Jewish. Paulie's Jewish. Todd Gordon's Jewish. Now right. I'm thinking, oh, because these oh. guys are Jewish, and I'm like, right. look, if I would have put him on a Jewish star, he would have just rolled away. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, but but if yeah, I, would I know what you're Jewish saying. Star, nobody would have cared. Yeah. They would have been like, why is he on a Jewish star? But on a cross, he's being crucified for for my sins. You know, yeah. that makes sense. A Jewish star makes zero sense. Yeah. You know, and so. Yeah, and the only reason Paulie had me go out and apologize is because of Kurt. Otherwise, he never would have done it. And really? I think he was feeling a little pressure because me, him, and Todd are Jewish and, and how it would look, you know. But he knew that, but he knew I was going to give the, the fakest, most insincere, sincere apology ever. Which but I were, did. There, were there organizations, were there religious organizations, you know, blasphemy and, you know, contacting no. you? Or, no, we Paul we Heyman probably would have loved the, that. We weren't right. up in the totem pole. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were, we were, you know, it's like WWE as high as they are in the totem pole. They yeah. still like if they if they did have if they did one fifth of the thing. No, I mean five. Uh, let me rephrase that. The NFL can do one fifth or one tenth of what WWF does, like you know, wrong, and they'll get bludgeoned for it. But WWF doesn't because we're not looked at. We're looked at. Wrestling is looked at as the stepchild. It always has been and always will be. Mm-hmm. Except well, and it's also kind years. of they know it's 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 removed from reality to a sense. You right. know what I'm saying? Like the NFL can't; these guys do these things, and uh, you know, and they 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 they're accountable for it. But in yeah. cases like that, because you know, you do get a, a level of you know that it's not that it's not reality, and so they they well, get but away. But it's also it's also because they're more mainstream now. As mainstream as wrestling is, it's still not considered mainstream. You know. Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned you mentioned the issues with with. Uh, you know, substances and, and drinking and, and, uh, how bad was it during that period of time when you said you actually had to step away? Uh, uh, well, that was more of an emotional breakdown. I had, um, I just, uh, it was a, that's a long story that I don't, I don't think we have time. We've already been going like an hour, but I don't think we have time for that. But, um, cause I, I even though we started late and which was my fault, I, I still, I got to get running pretty soon. Yeah. No um, but we can always do it again too, if you want. Uh, oh I'm, man, I'm, I'm really telling you, we could talk forever. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, I'd love to talk to you about. Uh, one thing I did want to uh, talk to you though, uh, that during that period of time, Scott, uh, you really tapped in. You really did ch- tap into a generation. There was a lot going on with young people then, and I, I wonder now when you see uh, our culture these days, and like how many uh, young people are are suffering with mental illness that uh, is. 
is there anything that like you, what, what is your uh, feeling today of what we need to do? And I, I don't mean to get too deep on you here, but no, no, it's fine. You know, uh, what it's like to, to live in that world, uh, whether it was, you know, what you were doing, creating or whatever, but you know, it's, it's, it's kind of frightening to see today. And I don't think anyone is really addressing it. I think honestly, the single biggest scourge of the world is bad parenting. There's nothing yeah. worse. Yeah. Bad parenting you. is the single worst thing because all it does is produce more bad people. Yeah. Um, I think everybody should see a psychiatrist. I think the psychologist should be mandatory for everyone. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, around 10, 12 years old, I think everybody should see one, you know, I'm not saying see one all the time and for years at a time, but I think they should be mandatory at some point in your life because nobody had, people don't, people just like when they have all the symptoms, you know, instead of dealing with them, you know, like wrestling, wrestling's full of tough guys, you know, but yeah. we're creative because we're creative people or you wouldn't be in this particular sport, but tough right. guys don't go to, don't go to psychologists and so many people could benefit from that. I mean, it saved, it saved me. I mean, it, I'm content now as a human being. I never could have dreamed of being content until, you know, I went to a psychologist's couch. Um, I got a buddy of mine who never would have went to a psychologist. And he's not a tough guy at all, but he never would have went because that's for other people until yeah. I talked him into it. And then and now and because a friend of his had died. His best friend had died, and he didn't know how to deal with it. And I'm like, go see this, this psychologist. And he did. And he's he's grown so much as a person. And it's it's amazing what you can learn on a couch, you know, about yourself. And, and the best part is, is or, or the worst part is, they make you do all the work anyway. Yeah. You know, it's like. Well, and, and it sounded like you struggled with it for, for years and years. Was there a breakthrough, or what is it that finally made you? Yeah, um, I, I, well, okay, one example is that uh, I always held myself to a higher standard. So I thought my career was a failure because I never became the world champion of WWE. You know, of course, the odds against that were astronomical. The yeah. fact that I yeah, burnt my sure. bridge up there numerous times was making sure it's not going to happen. <laughs> Third, I may not have been qualified to be the world champion. I mean, I think I, I was, but but let's just say, I, you know, some people don't think I was, you know, I, so let's say I wasn't. Um, no, but looking at it as a whole, Scott, I mean, when you just look at what you were able to do, when you think about the thousands and thousands and thousands of guys that are probably had the body, had the, could do the moves in the ring, but never got a, never got a sniff. They've been doing, they, you know, did indies may still be. So do you ever, were you ever able to look back and go, yeah, hell. I yeah. But that's what, that's what I was saying. That's why yeah. I went to a psychologist and eventually she pointed out that she goes, the only one holding you to a higher standard is you. You don't have to hold yourself to that standard. Your career was incredibly successful. I go, I go, yeah, but, and she goes, let me ask you this. If somebody else had your career, what would you tell them? Oh, they, they had an incredibly successful career. <laughs> right. Then why can't you let yourself have that? Mm -hmm. And that's what I dealt with. And that's what we went through over and over until I finally accepted the fact that I had a hell of a goddamn career. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. especially considering I'm a terrible athlete mid-card athlete at best and i'm not i'm six foot 230 well, 240 235 now but i yeah. was like in my heyday i was 230 235 yeah. but you know i was never a big guy i was not a good athlete but i always knew my psychology was stronger than theirs yeah. and and so but i eventually i accepted that which was due to being seeing a psychologist i mean yeah. 
And so now it also enabled me to deal with all my other baggage so that now I can be content. You know, I used to have to go out seven nights a week. I, I was going out seven nights a week from the time I was 15 till I was 45. Wow. You know, because I always had to be out, had to be where the action is. Now I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to stay home and watch TV with my dog. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. but I couldn't even imagine that. I couldn't imagine not going out. I, I'd be missing out. You know, it's what's it? Um, uh, FOMO. I guess that's a big thing now. FOMO, fear yeah. of missing out. Yeah. That was me. I was scared yeah. of missing out. I didn't want to miss a thing. I didn't want to miss any excitement. Now I don't even, I've already done it. I got the yeah. t-shirt. I threw up on the t-shirt. I bought another t-shirt. I threw up on that t-shirt. <laughs> I bought another t-shirt. Wiped my ass with it. Did another t-shirt. Yeah. Face planted. Ripped the shirt to shreds. Finally decided t-shirts weren't for me. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, um, it sounds like your your brain is as is, 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 uh, active as ever, but it's it sounds like you've, you've found some peace, and that that's great, uh, which included, well, yeah, Raven really Effect. Well. You've got Raven. the Raven Effect, and uh, have you ever thought, maybe you should do a podcast for, you could probably help a lot of kids. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but, man, it's something, they need yeah, a voice I, out there to help them. Cause, uh, that's you know. Actually, I never really thought about that, but, uh, yeah, that would be something that would be helpful. Um yeah, no, I should think about that. That's, that's a really good idea. Oh, I'm but, telling you, I, I, because they, first of all, they need somebody they can identify with. You've got, uh, you know, the history of, uh, you know, that you were able to reach a lot of these people and they need a voice and they need to find out, you know, which I really love that a lot of these celebrities who have struggled with depression and anxiety are coming out and saying, yeah, you know, that's me. I still deal with it every day. And I think we need more and more people to do that. And, uh, You'd be awesome. I, I, I oh man, thank you, thank you huh. so much. Well, I, 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 I know you got to go, Scott. Huh? I do want to say that on my podcast, uh, you would think it'd be a wrestling podcast, and it's wrestling adjacent, but it's more um, nonsensical or ridiculous. It's uh, it's basically anything we can do to get a laugh. Um, <laughs> me and my co-host, who's really really funny, and uh, well, the two of you. Between when you the the poems and stuff you do, I mean it's it's pretty funny, folks. You've got to check it out. <laughs> Thank you. It's the Raven it's Effect the, podcast on Westwood One on the Jericho yeah. Network. That's right. That's the Raven Effect. You can uh, on all your uh, free podcast platforms out there, folks. Check it out. Scott, thank you so much. And really, this conversation is not completed. I hope that uh, we can get you back on because uh, uh, we still have lots to talk about. But uh, uh, I'd love to, but, Sean. Love to. Uh, it's great talk. I'm glad we finally really got to meet, though, other than the first yeah. time we sort of met. Thanks so much for taking the time, and uh, talk to you soon. Take care. All right. Stay in touch. I know I say this every time we have an episode of Primetime with Sean Mooney, but I really enjoyed that conversation with Scott Levy. What a fascinating individual. And um, as I mentioned, we really didn't know each other, uh, but we did. It, that we had met, our paths had crossed so long ago before we really uh, started our careers in professional wrestling. And it's just, isn't that just amazing that, uh, you know, it is a small world that just by chance, I was uh, shooting that segment before I went to work for the WWF and uh, happened to get a shoot set up at the Monster Factory. And that is where uh, Scotty the Body, as he was known back then, uh, happened to be. And we, I just thought, you know, he was a really unique personality because they had a bunch of guys there, you know, at the camp, as you, as you can see there. 
but he was in you know great shape and he could talk even back then he could he could do a pretty good promo and uh, you saw that he was one of the two guys that made the cut for you know doing a little promo thing with me it, it's just incredible to think that he was my first uh, interview with uh, professional wrestling in professional wrestling that he was the guy I mean, you, and then he goes on to have this tremendous success uh, in in the business with uh, all that he did, and of course in the WWE, uh, just a, a, an incredible guy, and that and that was fun. That kind of set the tone for the the whole conversation. But uh, I'd love to run into him again. I imagine I will at some point at one of these uh, gatherings that uh, we get a chance to go to. But uh, really, uh, Raven, Johnny Polo, uh, <laughs> but uh, Scott Levy, really, what a what a great uh, conversation. Uh, you can, uh, as I mentioned at the top there, you uh, of the, before we went into the interview, that you can check that clip out. It's Light Moments in Sports, and we have put that up on our YouTube page, our YouTube channel. You can go there and and see the whole thing uh, that we did together, and uh, you know even puts up a little lower third in there. It says Scotty the Body, and uh, you can do that by just going to uh, primetimemooney.com. Primetimemooney.com. You'll go there and you'll find it. It's right there on the uh, front page there of our YouTube channel. So check it out. Uh, if you haven't subscribed yet to our YouTube channel while you're there, please do that. I mentioned we've uh, reached 600 subscribers. Our next milestone is 700 subscribers. Once we do that, we're going to release more bonus material. And when I say bonus material, this is uh, material that you cannot listen to anywhere else. We're only going to put it up on the YouTube uh, channel. And uh, we'll keep doing that as we uh, you know, keep growing in subscribers. There's still a ton of other content there. Most of the other episodes are there. We're uh, putting up some of the Hacksaw Jim Duggan episodes that uh, we uh, did way back when and did not have those posted anywhere else. So you can uh, check those out on the YouTube channel as well. Also, the new teas are out, as I mentioned, before we went to the conversation. Uh, you can go to MooneyTees.com. We've got uh, brand-new T-shirts up, the Moon Nation ones with the country f uh, flags on there, the U.K., uh, New Zealand, Australia. Uh, also, I think we've got the Canadian flag up there and then and maps and you can choose the one you want there's uh, eight or nine of them uh, different designs that you can get and uh, also the golden age of wrestling t-shirt that i love uh, check that out i think you'll like that one as well and uh, sean mooney who and a few others so go to mooneytees.com and check them out also if you are interested in advertising on prime time with sean mooney uh, we reach thousands and thousands of listeners every week, and they are a devoted bunch. They are loyal listeners. And uh, if you'd like to uh, find out more about how you can do that with us, we'd love to hear from you. Just uh, contact us at primetimemooney at gmail.com. That's primetimemooney at gmail.com. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode. We've got another great conversation on the way. And that will drop next Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Until then, for Primetime with Sean Mooney, I'm Sean Mooney, and I'm out. The world of NLW Radio never stops. Simplicity and ease is what you get when you host your podcast with Audio Boom. You can post up to five episodes per month, you get unlimited storage, and 500 minutes of recording time for each episode. 
Plus, advanced analytics, embeddable players, distribution of your podcast via Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Sovin, Spotify, and Stitcher. Pending approval by each platform. Right now, you can sign up for Audioboom's $9.99 monthly subscription plan and get your first month free by using promo code BOOM. That's B-O-O-M for one month free of hosting and distribution. Sign up for our $9.99 monthly subscription plan today.